Hello, My Favorite Theorem listeners. This is Evelyn. Before we get to this episode, I wanted to let you know about a very special live, virtual, My Favorite Theorem taping. If you're listening to this episode before July 16th, 2020, you're in luck because you can join us. We will be recording an episode of the podcast on July 16th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time as part of the Talk Math with Your Friends virtual seminar. Join us and our guest, Annalisa Cronell, to gush over triangles and DeSarg's theorem. You can find information about how to join on the My Favorite Theorem Twitter timeline, on the show notes for this episode at kpknudsen.com, or you can go straight to the source at sites.google.com slash southalabama.edu slash tmwyf. That is, of course, for talk math with your friends. We hope to see you there. Welcome to My Favorite Theorem, the podcast that will not give you coronavirus, like every <laughs> podcast, because they're podcasts. You know, just don't listen to it within six feet of anybody and you'll be safe. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. So if our listeners haven't figured out by now, we are recording this during peak COVID-19 uh, I don't want to use hysteria, but um, concern. Uh, yeah, well, we'll we'll see if it's peak concern or not. I feel well, like I could be more concerned. I'm not personally that concerned, but being chair of a large department where, you know, the provost has suddenly said, yeah, you should think about getting all of your courses online. Like all 8,000 students taking our courses should be online <laughs> anytime now. Uh, that, that's, it's, it's been a busy day for me, so I'm happy to be able to talk math a little bit. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, normally my job where I work by myself in my basement all day would be mm -hmm. perfect for for this. <laughs> but I, I do have some international plan, uh, travel planned. So we'll see what happens with that. Good luck. Um, but luckily, it does not impact video conferencing. That's right. Um, so, yeah, we're very happy today to be uh, chatting with uh, Belen Sinajini. Hi, will you introduce yourself? Yes, hi. Yat e she able in synergy initia. Filipino initially, touching you, but she Filipino dash she synergy initially. Hi, everyone. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Kevin. Um, my name is Belin Synergy. I'm a full time faculty professor in mathematics at Santa Fe Community College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm really excited to uh, join you for today's podcast. Yeah, I'm always excited to talk with someone else in the mountain time zone because it's like one less time zone conversion I have to do. <laughs> and we're the smallest, I mean, the, I guess the, the least populated of the, the four major U.S. time zones. And so um, mm. it's, it's a little rare. <laughs> it's rare for the best time zone. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. uh, yeah most <laughs> elevated time zone probably. Sure. Um, yeah, and Santa Fe is just beautiful. I'm sure it's wonderful this time of year. I've only been there in the fall. Yeah, it's we're transitioning from um, our cold weather to um, weather where we can start using our sweaters and um, shorts if we want to. 
Um, but yeah, we're we're excited for the warmer weather we had. Uh, we're we're always monitoring the the snowfall that we get, and we had a okay to decent snowfall and um, cold enough so that we we're looking forward to warm months now. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, Salt Lake is kind of the same. We had kind of a warm February, but we we had a few big snow dumps earlier. <laughs> um, so so yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, like, where are you from? How did you get here? <laughs> yeah, um, I am Navajo and Filipino. I introduced myself with the traditional greeting. Um, so I, my mother is Filipino. My father is Navajo. And I grew up here in New Mexico, in Mount Noji, New Mexico, which is um, over the Jemez Mountains here in Santa Fe. Um, so I went to high school, elementary school, college here in New Mexico. Um, I went to high school here in Santa Fe. I got my undergraduate degree from the University of New Mexico, and I ventured all the way out over to the next state over to University of Arizona to get my graduate degree. Um, while I was over there, I um, got married, started um, family with my wife, and um, we're both from New Mexico. and. One of our biggest goals and dreams was to um, come back to New Mexico and live here and raise our families where our families are from and where we're from. And when the opportunity presented itself to take a position um, at the Institute of American Indian Arts here in Santa Fe, a, uh, it's a tribal college serving indigenous communities um, from all over, the, um, all over the nation in North America, um, I wanted to take that. So um, I feel very blessed to have been able to work for eight years at a tribal college and then an opportunity came to uh, serve a broader Santa Fe, New Mexico community, which I also also serve communities that are near and dear to my heart, where um, I've been here for over 30 years and um, am really excited to have this opportunity to serve my community at a community college setting. Um, So going into... Um, academia and going into um, mathematics is not a necessarily typical track that um, a lot of people have opportunities to uh, take on, but I feel very blessed to uh, be doing math that I love, serving communities that I love, and um, being able to raise my families around the communities that I love, too. And uh, so it I feel like I have a special kind of buy-in by engaging in a career that serves my communities and in communities that are going to raise my families as well, too. That's great. Nice. So I, I see over your shoulder a little bit of a Sierpinski triangle. Um, <laughs> oh, is, is that related yeah. to the kind of math you like to think about? Or is it just pretty? Yeah, so when <laughs> when I was at the... It, it's one that's pretty... When I was at the Institute of American Indian Arts, um, most of the students there, they're there for art. They come from Native communities. And they're not there to do mathematics necessarily. So part of my excitement was to um, think in, about ways to broaden the ideas of mathematics and to build off of their creative strengths. And um, that piece is a, a, a piece that a, one of my students did. They did their own take on a Sierpinski triangle. and. I have a few of those items around my office where um, trying to integrate visual arts and integrate creative aspects of 
between mathematics from uh, cultural aspects as well, too. Yeah, so I always think of Native American art as being kind of geometric in nature. Like, it, it, it feels that way to me. I mean, at least, at least the, the limited bit that I've seen. Is that sort of generally true? or? Uh, yeah, and, and the thing about Native art is that Native cultures are diverse in and mm -hmm. of themselves, too. So there are over 500 really recognized tribes, and in New Mexico, there are over 20 tribes alone and 20 nations alone, and each of them have their own notions of geometry and their own notions of their kinds of mathematics that they mm -hmm. engage in with respect to the place that um, their cultures, their identities, and their languages are rooted in. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is uh, visual and geometric because that's what mm -hmm. we see, but there's also plenty that I imagine that we don't see uh, that's embedded in the languages and the practices. Mm -hmm. And um, part of my curiosity is um, seeing how we can recognize what we do and what our traditions are, how that's, um, how we can recognize that as mathematical. And it might be mathematical in a sense that we as professional mathematicians might not be accustomed to seeing or, or um, experiencing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm still trying to understand my own cultures, languages, and traditions too. So I, I know mathematics more than a lot of how I experience my own culture. So um, on one hand, I'm, I'm seeing things from a traditional mathematician brought through academia, but also trying to understand things through the lens of someone who's trying to better understand my cultures and histories. So what is your favorite theorem? Uh, the theorem I chose today was Arrow's Impossibility Theorem. Nice. Great. And this will be a timely one because this will be, air at least for uh, the U.S., because it will be airing. <laughs> I mean, I guess the past two years basically have been part of the 2020 presidential <laughs> season, but really in the thick of it. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about what this is. So I'll say more about why I'm kind of drawn to this theorem. So it's a theorem that basically says that there is no perfect rank voting uh, system or mm -hmm. no perfect way of choosing a winner. And by extension, for me, it kind of brings up conversations about how democracy itself isn't perfect and that there, it's really hard to say that a democratic system can accurately represent the will of the people. And I was drawn to this term because as I started thinking about the cultural aspects of mathematics and mathematics education. I'm also interested in the power dynamics and the political dynamics and the sociopolitical aspects of mathematics and math education. And a lot of what's out there and written about math education talks about um, using quantitative reasoning and quantitative analysis and statistical analysis to really engage in um, critical dialogues and um, examining inequities and injustices in the world. And all of that is rich and engaging and needed and necessary uh, ways that we can use mathematics to view the world. But the um, mathematician part of me still misses the definition, proof, mm -hmm. lemma aspect of engaging in mathematics. So this, this proof kind of, um, or this theorem kind of represents a way of engaging in politics uh, through some of that uh, theorem and 
um, definition lemma aspects of it. So the way that I understand Arrow's theorem, and I mentioned this to you before, that um, I don't know the ins and outs of this theorem. I just really like the ramifications of it and the discussions that it generates. Um, but it basically starts with the idea that uh, we can describe functions where we're considering a way of choosing a winner of an election from a list of candidates. And uh, we're taking each voter's ranked preference of those candidates. So um, one thing that we're assuming is that each voter can rank a list of N candidates, um, A sub 1, 3 mm -hmm. sub N. And, um, and if everyone can rank their preferences, then a voting system would be a way to take all of those, uh, those ranks or those ballots and choosing a rank, uh, an overall ranking that um, is supposed to indicate um, an overall preference for um, the group of voters. Um, and what Arrow's impossibility theorem talks about is that we want values and we want to describe good ways of what a good uh, voting system is. So we want to describe um, a list of criteria that shows that we have a good voting system. Um, so the list of criteria that involves Arrow's impossibility theorem talks about um, one, unrestricted domain, two, social ordering, uh, three, weak Pareto or unanimity, four, non-dictatorship, and five, independence of irrelevant alternatives. And I'll go through what each one means. So basically, an unrestricted domain means that we want a voting system or a way of choosing a winner to be able to take any set of ballots with any number of candidates and be able to give some overall ordering that you know, it, it kind of like a, that these functions are well-defined, that this function is well-defined. Um, that we can, um, that if everyone, so the unanimity condition talks about if everyone prefers one candidate over, over another, where every single voter has one candidate ranked over another candidate, then the overall function that turns the ballots into a overall social ordering should indicate that that candidate is preferred over the other candidate. And um, we also don't want a dictatorship, right? And the idea of that mathematically defined is that we don't want one voter deciding exclusively what the overall social ordering is of the candidates. And so we don't want a dictatorship. And we don't want an independence of irrelevant alternatives. And um, what, that, what a lot of people think about as an example of is um, a spoiler candidate or a third-party candidate where even if everyone prefers one candidate over another, that a change in order of a third or other candidate um, without disrupting that other order shouldn't change the overall outcome of an election. So they relate that to how sometimes third-party candidates can be a spoiler for an election, even though overall um, it looks like a plurality of voters might prefer one candidate over another, but um, certain voting systems can have that characteristic where um, a third or other um, other set of candidates can disrupt the outcome of that election. Never heard of that. Uh, so it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be terrible if so, that ever yeah. happened? <laughs> right, right, right. So what Arrow's impossibility theorem says is that um, those are all 
those all may be desired characteristics of a of a voting system or a social choice function, but that it's impossible to have all of those criteria in a voting right. system. Um, so the the general outline of the proof is that if we have um, a system that has the unanimity criterion and the independence of irrelevant um, irrelevant alternatives, um, that if we have those two cho- if we have those two criteria in a social choice function, then the voting system must be a right. dictatorship. So if we have those assumptions, then we can go through and show that there is a voter whose soul um, or that whose soul ordering determines the overall ordering of the uh, the voting group of the uh, of the yeah. voters. That's how I, that's how I always learned this theorem is that the only thing that you know you set down these minimal criteria and the only thing that works is a dictatorship. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And these criteria are completely you reasonable. Can't have it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. right. They're not outlandish. Yep. They're what we might think of as value, uh, uh, things that we might value in a democracy. Um, and, you know, of course, these, these things don't perfectly replicate what's going on in um, the real world, but the outcome is still fascinating to me that um, mathematically we can show that we can't have all these sets of what we think are reasonable criteria in a voting system. Mm-hmm. Recently, maybe in the last two years, you know, I've been sort of, Get, been getting interested in uh, gerrymandering questions, and and there's right. there's a similar sort of theorem that got proved in the last year or two, which essentially says that you know people like th- they don't like these sort of weird shaped districts. They think that's bad somehow because it, mm-hmm. it's un, it's mm-hmm. unpleasing to the eye. But apparently, you know, there's, and there's also these ideas of um, uh, the 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 efficiency gap where you sort of want to minimize vote wastage. And so if you, if you laid out some simple criteria like, you know, you, you want compact districts and you want to, you know, uh, make the efficiency gap as uh, minimize that, then uh, the theorem is you have to have weird shaped districts, right? So it's sort of an mm-hmm. impossibility theorem mm-hmm. in that way, too. So like, you know, you, these, these kinds of ideas propagate through all of these, these kinds of systems. The real world is, right. is impossible. That's right. <laughs> right. And even by extension, you know, like in, in many voting theory or um, classes, um, there's a districting problem which relates to uh, a good um, metric for measuring compactness, um, but then the apportionment issue mm-hmm. as well, too, that there's no, um, or it's very hard, if not impossible, to find a fair way of apportioning um, a whole number of representatives that's proportionate to a state's population relative to the mm-hmm. overall population mm-hmm. of the country. Yep. And so, yeah, this is one of my favorite theorems because it kind of opens the door to those conversations and um, gives me another way of thinking about when um, representatives or people who talk about the outcomes of elections say things like, the people have spoken, this is the will of the people, we have a mandate now. Um, that it, I think these outcomes really complicate those claims and um, should really give us a critical eye and, and a critical way of um, really discussing what the will of the people are and how, how those discourses um, really perpetuate the idea that voting and voting alone um, can accurately indicate the will of the people and that, that that's to be accepted. And, um, and that we move forward with them. 
Yeah. So have you gotten to use these um, the arrows paradox or uh, any of these other things in classes? I when I was at um, the Institute of American Arts, I I I tried to develop a a, a voting theory class, and we got into that and talked about that, and and it interested me too because the voting system on the Navajo Nation, we vote for our own uh, council and our own presidents too, and I use this as a way to think about and how we have a certain candidate in Navajo Nation who's always running and is seemingly unpopular, and um, the voting system for president in the Navajo Nation is that we have that two-party runoff system where um, we vote for our top choices and that the top two vote-getters um, participate in a general runoff election. And every, for, for a few consecutive elections, this one candidate that's seemingly unpopular just gets enough votes to um, get in the top two for the runoff election and then um, gets overwhelming, overwhelmingly outvoted in the, in the general election. So I think it, it's a, for me, it was a fascinating way to engage in these kind of mathematical ideas or mathematical discourses while talking about some of the real outcomes that are going on in our, in our nations, in our communities, in our, um, in our efforts towards our self-determination and sovereignty. Um, so I wanted to tie in something that's mathematical, where we can talk about mathematical discussions um, with um, issues that are contemporary and real to our, our peoples. Mm-hmm. And something I always wonder about is, you know, we've got we've got a theorem that says voting is impossible or it says that, you know, it, it's impossible to actually, you know, say like this is the will of the people. Um, mm-hmm. But do you know if much research has been done about like real sets of choices that people have and what voting systems might be like, do they really experience this paradox or in the real world, do they have these, you know, strange orders of preferences that that confound, you know, ranked choice voting rarely? I imagine that there is research out there and there are people who have engaged in it much more than I have. Um, but something that makes me curious are the, some of the underlying assumptions that go into Arrow's theorem um, and what has been mathematized as necessary criteria and the values that those might um, be representative for certain groups of people. For example, um, one of the, I guess you could call it an axiom of many of these voting um, theory theorems and mathematics is that um, one voter is one vote. And, you know, there are systems where that might not be true, but one of their criteria is one, one person, one vote. Um, and that one person votes for their own interests and their own interests only. And, you know, there are extensions of these, um, these criteria where if we have other non-rank voting systems, then it can help. Um, but let me backtrack. One of the outcomes of the Eros term is that this, when people know that it's impossible for um, their, uh, the outcome to really represent the will of the people, then could result in people voting for candidates other than their first option because they know that voting for someone other than a true option could sway an election in favor of some, something that's not of their desire. Um, so we have people voting against um, their own actual first choices. Um, 
So some, and that happens with ranked choice voting and um, some of the extensions of these conversations have been what about um, voting systems that don't require ranked choice. Mm-hmm. So perhaps giving each candidate a ranking and it helps alleviate some of those, um, those issues with ranked choice voting. Um, and it helps um, alleviate those issues of third party candidates where you can still give your candidate five stars out of five, like an Amazon review, but, um, <laughs> but, but still like really give a, 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 perhaps a better indication of your true view of the candidates um, other than uh, linear ranking. So there are some, it kind of reveals that there are some issues with just linear ranking of candidates when the way that we think about and value and um, understand our preference of candidates might be much more complex than a simple one through N ranking. Um, but kind of going back to what I think this could mean for communities and um, other societal perspectives is um, in many democracies, that one vote, one choice is kind of an assumption that that's what we want. But for many communities, perhaps we want to vote for something that does benefit an overall view of the people. What, what would that look like as a criteria if? Um, we allow for something like that. What would we do if we allow criteria or embed in our definitions some way of evaluating how, um, if when we register a vote, that we're all not only taking into account our own individual interests, but the interests of our land, of our communities, of our nations. Um, so those are cultural values that are not assumed in the current conversations, but um, for many um, communities and many indigenous nations, those are some things that are real and necessary to think about. So what would that look like if we expand those and, and be critical of those assumptions that are un- underlying these, these current conversations on voting theory mm-hmm. and mathematics? So one of the other things we do on this podcast is we ask our guests to pair their theorem with something. What have you chosen to pair with this theorem? I have... A ranking of three. Choices. Great. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> Excellent. So I have uh, um, one through three, so I'll give my third choice first. Okay. Um, the third out of three pairings, uh, green chili cheeseburgers. Mm. Okay. And in New Mexico, everyone has their favorite place to get a green chili cheeseburger, and we take pride in our green chili. And um, every year, any contest about the green chili cheeseburger and who has the best green chili cheeseburger um causes some um conversation and it causes some it causes some controversy Mm -hmm. and and rich discussions over who has the best green chili cheeseburger so i think about like that as kind of the um the the food that has a lot of controversy and as to who has the best um green chili cheeseburger in new mexico um the second pairing is another food item, uh, the Navajo taco. Oh, yeah. Well, what's in this? Those are good. Uh, what's in this? <laughs> so, so what we call a Navajo taco is a piece of fry bread with toppings often involving meat and cheese, lettuce and tomato, and maybe some chili. And this is another controversial um, discussion in Native communities because we call it a Navajo mm-hmm. taco. but it's not just Navajos who make this kind of dish because many communities make their own versions of fry bread. And um, 
And so some places call it Indian tacos, some places call it Pueblo tacos, and um, there, there's a lot of controversy over which community first introduced a Navajo taco and why it's called a Navajo taco and others call it Indian taco. And so in, in Native communities, there's a lot of um, controversy over, over what constitutes uh, the best version of this dish. And the other reason I'm pairing that is the, um, the fry bread itself comes from a time where um, it was created out of a necessity for survival, where the flour that had been rationed out to our communities was uh, rancid, and in order to make, actually make it edible, it was deep fried. And so on one hand, it um, represents a point in time where our communities were were just fighting for survival, and it also represents their ingenuity and became a part of our everyday practice. But at the same time, it's a reminder that, that that's something that was imposed on our communities. And um, much like voting systems nowadays, too, where it's an act of our survival and our sovereignty, the, the voting systems that we have in place. Um, but I think there's also a need to come back and have other conversations about um, what's good for our communities. And then the, the, the first rank pairing is mathematics itself okay. <laughs> with, with Arrow's theorem. So we have a lot of conversations about um, how mathematics is universal, mathematics is for everyone, that everyone can do mathematics, and that everyone can participate in mathematics. Um, but from, from many people, from, from equity, justice, and diversity perspectives, we want to be critical about um, who has access to mathematics, mm -hmm. whose, um, whose ideas of mathematics is represented in um, our mainstream ways of thinking about mathematics. Much like we think about democracy as being the will of the people and being a representation of all of the people, um, the, the Sarah's term is kind of a uh, critique of that notion of democracy. And um, I think mathematics, we can take a, a lesson from this theorem and think about what we mean when we say mathematics is universal and mathematics is for everyone and mathematics is for all. Mm -hmm. um, when this theorem itself, it's kind of like a democratic take on mathematics that everyone can do mathematics and everyone can be an uh, equal participant in mathematics. Um, but you know, we think the same thing about democracy and this theorem says that there are some issues with that. So um, I'm interested in seeing how we can take this lesson and think how we can think about how we can be more critical about the ways we think about mathematics mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, well, and you say that and that, you know, the arrows paradox is not about this, but we have issues with people who can't vote for various reasons and should be able to vote um, or places that shut down polling places in certain communities to make it so that people have to stand in line for six hours, um, which is, you know, not easy to do for <laughs> if right. you've got a job that you need to get to. Um, so yeah, mm -hmm. there's, there's so much richness. I love, I love that you paired three, a ranked, mm -hmm. a ranking of three things this with this. Yeah. And now I, I feel like we should also vote on these, but I, I just don't think it's fair for one of them to be math. And you're asking us, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got two mathematicians here or three mathematicians here in total. We're just, I think it's going to be a blowout. I, no, I think no. I, I think tacos <laughs> win every time, don't they? <laughs> I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> uh, 
this is a really good pairing. I like this a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we we also like to give our guests a chance to to plug anything or or where where can we find you online, for example, or can we? Um, probably the best way to find me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Lobo with a cause. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, you'll you see, see him, him popping up everywhere. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that the mascot for and the University of New Mexico? It is. Okay. Yes. The Lobos. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yep. Lobo. Lobo with a cause. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe a talk that you gave at the joint math meetings, um, is there video of that uh, available somewhere? I was told that there would be video. I haven't found it yet. Okay. Um, there was a video recorded, and I I hope um, I'll I'll follow yeah. up with that and um, see that it gets some. Um, I'll I'll make an announcement on Twitter when sure. it uh-huh. when I, when I've I noticed those out. have been trickling out kind of slowly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, it'll yeah. show up. I think. Yeah, we'll try to dig it up by the time we put the show notes together right. so people can watch that. Unfortunately, I was still making my way to uh, Denver when that happened, so mm. I didn't get to see so selfishly. I very much <laughs> want to see it. I heard really good things about it. Um, so thank you so much for yeah. coming on here and giving us a lot to think about. Uh, it was an honor, and you know, I, I love your podcast. I love what Thanks you're doing. So um, I had fun in listening to your other podcasts in preparation for this. and. Um, loved hearing Henry Fowler mm-hmm. and um, shout out to Moon Dushin too. I, I heard that you, Kevin, went to that Jerry Mandarin workshop in Boston mm-hmm. a few years ago. I was there too, and um, I had oh, a great yeah. week there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and I got with Rochelle Gutierrez yeah. all week. Well, that, that was a big <laughs> workshop. I mean, there was no way to meet everybody. Yeah, was it was. Some, yeah, cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, and you too. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nibiknazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.